Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Peter and Robert, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thanks for having us, Bob. Thanks for having us. Uh, th- so this is the first time I've interviewed two people, and I'm shit at multitasking, so we'll see how this one goes. Um, but I'd like <laughs> to start uh, start podcasts ask, uh, off by asking people, who are you, what do you do, and why are you qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? You go, you go first. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, why am I qualified? Well, I'm not as qualified as Peter, is what I'll, what I'll, I'll always say, um, or, or many other uh, guests, it sounds like, on your podcast. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I kind of got into, uh, I got into wine just from a, as a, as a, as a, from passion, as a taster, as a collector, as a, someone interested in it, I, you know, I was exposed to wine uh, while I was working in tech and, and, uh, and through investors and discovered the world of fine wine and got looped into uh, the food and beverage scene, uh, which was largely um, expats while I was living in, uh, in China. So, um, you know, had a, you know, large European, British, American contingent that was uh, tasting really some of the great wines of the world uh, with a considerable amount of age on it. And it just kind of like captured my heart and mind. And I just, all I could think about. Uh, so I started doing uh, WC, WSET studies uh, with Fongi Walker uh, in Beijing. Uh, and then eventually ended up doing uh, the diploma, which took, I took a long time to do that because I kind of moved back to California at some point um, and, uh, and had kids and all that stuff. Uh, and then afterwards I just started writing about wine and, and, and making and posting and, and, you know, originally started out making YouTube videos then started augmenting that with some Instagram and then people just started following me. And so I started to keep writing about it with the hopes of one day, maybe I'll see if I can do the master of wine program. And then, you know, the internet kind of blew up on the social media. And next thing you know, that I have this, you know, fairly large following. And then, uh, I was, you know, Peter and I've been talking about a podcast for a little bit, you know, I met Peter through, uh, um, our diploma tasting group and, uh, and pandemic started. We're like, let's do this. We got time on our hands. We're at home. Uh, we don't have to commute anywhere. And so we started the X Chateau podcast and, uh, started, uh, start off with us talking about Peter's book, uh, luxury wine marketing. And then, uh, and then we just started interviewing people and, and started to get some traction. And it was just really interesting. And now, you know, we talk about all these, uh, what was it? One of our, one of our guests we talked about, it's like, these are not the sexy things that people want to talk about at a dinner party, but they're, <laughs> that, they're the content of our podcast. And so we end up talking about like, you know, really nerdy, geeky stuff that really only people in the trade are interested in for the most part are really, really avid collectors. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we've been doing this for about two years now, and uh, and have a and have a pretty uh, healthy name out there for in the business podcast space. Yeah, definitely. I I, I would implore everyone listening to this to subscribe to X Chateau. It came it came in well handy in the in the, uh, in the August exams. Um, so yeah, Peter. So can you tell me about your back because I've got your book, and again, like, again, this is I think it's kind of crucial reading for anyone certainly doing the MW. Um, but yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. I guess I'm qualified for this only because I've been stuck in the MW program for so long. And, you know, Robert has just joined, as we talked about before recording, multi-year torture for it. But, you know, I I don't know what year it is now with the pandemic, five or six in the practical only. And with X Chateau, I kind of wish we had done this before I did did theory because that would have made my life a lot easier <laughs> at least embedded studying but the the book definitely helped with that as well so yeah i co-authored luxury wine marketing with liz tosh from who's an mw from sonoma state uh i ran uh 
sort of business analytics and the allocation programs at Realm Cellars and Costa Brown Winery for a number of years. And today I'm an independent business consultant in the wine space. So I service both wineries, wine brokers, e-commerce companies, private equity companies who are looking to get into the wine space. So a diverse array of things, but generally with a business lens, both on a, on the sales and marketing side and on the finance side. So I'm bringing that together with long-term business strategy as well. So that's sort of what I do in the space after a career in, in, uh, in business in Silicon Valley and at a consultant at McKinsey. So one of the benefits of being the first um, podcast I've done since the recent exams is I've got a whole load of new questions to ask people rather than just asking whether or not the wine trade cares enough about branding like five times. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll kick off by asking um, one of the, I think it was paper four or paper five from, uh, from this year. Uh, how has market transparency facilitated by the internet and social media influenced the supply, demand and pricing of wine and who benefits? Uh, so Robert, this is kind of up your alley, I think. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, you know, I think P- I'm gonna. You know, Peter and I have, uh, have probably different perspectives, and I'm gonna stay away from the word luxury wine because I just don't want to fight with him because uh, <laughs> I because I'm gonna be wrong. Uh, but uh, you know, I think the wine industry, to some extent, has been more opaque than other industries. So, sure, we've made a lot of leaps and bounds in terms of market transparency. Um, over the last 10, 20 years, but it still had a lot longer to go because I think a lot of it's been obfuscated by how wine is sold um, through the various layers that, that it goes to, especially in the fine wine space. So, you know, I think in order to look at this, you kind of have to look at what is the, what segments of the market are you looking at? So, you know, I, and at a high level, I'll just break it into two major segments in terms of commercial wine and fine wine. Um, and sure, there's tons more segments, uh, but just for the sake of, you know, timing of your podcast, not needed. Um, so I'm just going to keep it to those two. So the internet really has helped, you know, you know, make price transparent to everybody. And th- the end result is that I think for commercial wines, that has actually reduced, in general, actually for both wine categories, it has reduced the margins across the board. Um, at the same time, you have an increased demand in wine. So the advantage that commercial wines have is that they're able to scale up production and bring the and you know main, you know bring the costs down in order to you know either maintain their margins or increase or, or match the supply that is or the, match the demand match the supply with the demand that is in the market. But one could argue that at some point that's at the expense of quality. But who do those consumers care about that in that regard, or do they even know that the quality is is that differential? That's a you know another talking point. Um, I think the reverse is true for fine wine. Demand has gone up but supply can't be scaled as quickly. And so sure, the prices are more transparent, uh, but because there's so much demand, the overall prices are have been skyrocketing. And you see this, especially where there's even tinier allocations of things like in Bordeaux. And so the fine wine consumers are super savvy. You know, they're, they know what they're buying. They know what it's worth to them. And that to them part is super important because they understand the scarcity of some of these wines that they're willing to pay more um, than what it's worth, and so sometimes that's whether that's the allocation model or through secondary markets. Um, that you know, there's a huge drive up of that, and it's also created opportunity for small retailers who just service those industries. And I think of like in the U.S., we have uh, Stom Selects or, or Thatcher's Wine Consulting. Like they they just tailor their whole business is an online. You know, they go to Europe, they pick out the wines, they bring, they direct import, and they sell them before they ever land. And then they're really high end wines, very exclusive. And they're only selling to a smaller group, but those that group is pretty powerful. And in terms of social media, um, social media has made my, wine more mainstream for sure. Um, people, there's a lot more people talking about wine, drinking wine, being exposed to wine, and 
let's just face it, like having an extra, like not being able to go and visit a winery for everybody is, an, is, a, is a luxury. So having to be able to see that visuals, tell that story, tell that branding through social media and even through other voices is extremely powerful. One of the, and you know, one could argue that it's unclear whether that directly correlates to sales, but it definitely increases awareness for a lot of brands, especially brands that are accessible to a wide audience, uh, like commercial wines. And even to the even to the collectors, like there are groups of people that are like these high end people that are drinking these things. And you're you know, like I always think about like the uh, the hashtag uh, Psalm Life, where people are drinking these crazy wines, or Psalms are opening these crazy wines for people um, that create create this allure and create this hype around wines. Like you know, I think in like Domaine Bizo and these like super high end uh, wines that you know are almost impossible for the mere mortals to to taste or even purchase. Um, so I think it does drive. Um, I'll, you know, and then you have influencer marketing, which is another aspect of it. And I think influencer marketing is really interesting because it gives brands, especially big brands, a chance to have unofficial ambassadors that allow people to speak to a loyal audience, and actually that that loyal audience is more likely to listen to than hearing it directly from the brand themselves. So are you and, quite? Um, you know, I think it's one of. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So I was going to say, so are you quite in favor of, of, of influence marketing? Because there definitely seems to be a lot of BS that goes with it. Like there's, do you think it's something that people should really pay more attention to? Oh, good question. Um, I think in wine, it still needs to find uh, where it's going to land correctly. So the real influencers are the people that have an audience, regardless of what they're talking about. So the people that have an audience and that aren't created by the brands. So if you're, if you're, if you're someone that just, and it, it, and again, it's like there, I think it's, I think it's good if someone actually can move an audience to, to do something or create awareness. So if like, if I, you know, I think of like the other industries like makeup and things like that, where they're like, Hey, I'm a YouTuber and, or a influencer. And I'm, I'm basically talking about how to apply makeup. There's an actual educational value that those consumers are getting. They, they've built a loyalty with that following. And then when they say, and they say, Hey, I actually, use this and look, and this is awesome. This is what I use. That has a huge impact. Now, does wine have that exact same thing? Not yet. I think there are people trying in that space and, and, and making some attempts, but I think it's still trying to figure out what does it mean? I also think we have so much regulation on how to sell wine and market wine that makes it very, very difficult. I think there's an interesting point there, which is, is it worth wine brands or wine businesses to pay influencers to rep their products or to promote their products? So it's it's one thing to be an influencer and send some product as samples. It's another thing to like invest money in that marketing channel to grow to grow the awareness to understand if it drives sales and conversion. And Robert and I always have this discussion where he believes that influencers are more about awareness at the top of the marketing funnel and less about the sales conversion side at the bottom of the funnel. And so, if so, is that money that you're spending there going to generate enough return to? make that worthwhile to, to actually pay money, which a lot of influencers, if they're taking this seriously, would like to see or like to have. Yeah, I mean, there's data around, around that if, if, if an influencer actually has an audience and they recommend genuinely recommend something, whether it's paid or not, it's a different story. Um, but if they genuinely say, hey, I, I like this wine and, or I like this thing, that they're more likely to make a purchasing decision based on that versus the the generic marketing that they see from the winery. And so I, I would question how valuable is the, the existing marketing they've, the wineries have been doing to some extent as well. It's cool. So the next, next question I wanted to kind of ask was, uh, so you, you had a couple of great episodes with Damien Wilson 
Um, and uh, there, it, it, this year's paper came up and it said, how is it important is it for wine producers to develop new products? And then, and Damien gave some great stats on hard seltzers and, and other stuff. Um, like, well, I suppose partly from a, a US point of view and also from a luxury wine point of view, um, how important is it to develop new products and like, and and also how to market them? Yeah, we had Damien Wilson, who's a professor at Sonoma State came on our show and did we split it into two episodes because he had so much good content on marketing to millennials. And so millennial hard seltzers, new products. I think as you think of yourself as a brand or as a producer, it depends what what your context is already and what your business model is. I think people forget a lot about the business model part. Because if you're a wholesale driven business like Opus One, for example, it's easier to tell your story uh, to you know sommeliers and whatnot, and have a brand and build your brand. If you just have, in their case, historically one wine, even though they have Overture now that they're trying to build as like a second wine, but and you can you know restaurants, retailers, distributors are buying pallets, right, of, of one wine, telling the story, selling it out. If you're a direct to consumer driven business it's easier to get someone to buy a case of wine with six different wines in it than a case of one single wine. And so I, I and, and drink it down and continue to buy year after year again. So I think, you know, whether or not you want to have new products in, in that benefits you or not depends on your business model. It depends on the portfolio you have already. There are many wineries, especially Pinot Noir Chardonnay producers uh, in California or even in Burgundy that have like 20 to 30 wines already you might not need having more might just create more confusion and not be that exciting for your brand. But if you have four or five wines, a new product might be very helpful. I think uh, for most brands, it's important to keep the brand fresh. We have a chapter about this in luxury wine marketing. And so people like Penfolds have done an excellent job of continuing to come out with innovation and new things that get collectors excited. Uh, and on the commercial side, wine side, I think you're you're talking about seltzers and things like that. And that's really trying to f- target consumer trends and consumer behavior or what people are interested in these days. And, you know, coming up with new products is like, it, it depends if it's working or not. And you have that data and you get it back quickly. It's a new flavor of, you know, jello effectively. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of, I agree with Peter. I mean, I think it depends if you're going after something like the seltzer market, like you have to identify that trend early and be a fast mover to get in that space. If you wait and you're just one of like 50 seltzer offerings that, you know, the original incumbents are the ones that are going to stand, you know, in one of the things talking about Damien, there's always been something like hard seltzer, um, you know, Bartles and James and all these other Zimas and uh, yeah, yeah. All those random things, uh, that, that have come and gone, but they have, you know, they have, they have legs for five to seven years. And so it's like, you have to figure out how quickly you want to commit to that. I think, you know, being the, understanding the brand and how quickly they're going to move into that space, and will they be successful or not? And can you, is there and what's the advantage? Can you can you segue them into your other product line by doing that? That's the giant question. Where hard seltzer is not right; they're just like the hard seltzer. Like, or I mean, White Claw is just trying to sell you White Claw, but it, trying to upsell them from a Duckhorn seltzer to a Duckhorn wine. That seems like a giant leap for me, but um, but obviously people as they age up and change in their change of demographics get more wealth. Um, that is a totally a possible thing, but will they connect that brand awareness in a good way? Is a question mark. 
And those consumer fads come and go, right? And so you have to be churning out new products all the time if you're in that space because like Robert and I are the same age pretty much exactly. And so that's why Zima is our reference. <laughs> We're aging ourselves. But, you know, I don't know if it even exists anymore, right? And there's a lot of hard salsa brands that aren't going to exist in five years from now. And then something new will be created that will hit the new trend, whatever that is. Are there any, um, especially like Nappen people, you've seen do anything cool and funky that's caught a trend like that? I can't think of any off the top of my head, but um, but then I'm not there. So, um, And also the States has always been a little bit ahead of, you know, in terms of cool stuff, I think. Certainly in the UK. I, I'd say a longer term trend, and I don't know if this is a fad or not, but towards like low alcohol wines and things of that nature. So I think Steve Mathiasen uh, does a lot of sort of like more leaner, low alcohol style. And sometimes these are like pendulum swings, right? You go to the super rich ripe and then you swing all the way to the opposite end. And in the long run, I guess eventually it sort of balances out into whatever it should be. If, if that ever happens, but you know, what John Maynard Kane said, the there is the long run is made up of all the short runs. <laughs> you may never see the long run. Yeah, I think what's also interesting with the big brands, um, and I think they've re- you know what they're good at in terms of these major conglomerates, or what they're good at is marketing and and realizing that the label, the name, that the the variety, that all targets a demographic. And so by adding more SKUs, they're they're enabling themselves to kind of like monopolize shelf space, especially for people who are going into a retail store and buying it off a grocery store store shelf. So just by you know amassing the you know the the number of you know bottles that they have or SKUs that they have uh that they can be you know owning that 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 end cap, it's gonna push off other competitors. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for their business. Is it good for the wine industry? I mean, that's a giant question mark, depending on the quality of that wine and, and what it does for the consumer. And I don't. I think the consumers, when they go to the shelf, when you go look at a, a major grocery store in the US, there's really not that many companies behind all those bottles of wine. There and and it's not clear to the consumers. So it's you know in that regard, the marketing messaging it obfuscates who's actually making this wine and are or someone telling you a different story. You're just hearing a brand message. You're hearing a crafted narrative uh, that was made up for you to tell a story based on what they think you want to hear. And so I, I just I think that there's some part of that I don't love, and that's where I'm a huge fan of wine e-commerce because I think that we kind of blow that out of the water a little bit. But uh, you know that's that's what's happening, and I and I think it's you know, in some ways, not the best for the average consumer uh, going to a supermarket to buy wine. Right. Now, apart from the two of you, who do you consider to be the real pioneers in the industry at the moment? Sure, I can uh, I can start. I mean, I think for me, when I when I think of a pioneer, it's it's either someone doing something new, but I think the real pioneers, the people who are doing something new in a place that's old um, and that especially in the wine industry. And so uh, if I were to look at someone like, you know, I'm going to go into producers because it's a little bit easier, um, it, like champagne, like a lot of people talk about it on some cells, uh, but I, it's often used, but I actually think someone like Cedric Bouchard, who's just doing something, a completely different approach to champagne and the wines are fabulous. Sure. They're hard to get, but like, you know, everything's single plot, single vintage, single variety, like, and then really just telling that story from the ground up and nothing else. Like I'm not making them like, there's no, there's no tiered structure. It's like, this is this, this is that it's like taking a burgundy approach to champagne and sure other people are doing it, but uh, you know, he's doing it to such a refined level um, that I think it's amazing. And those, in those wines are, you know, I wish there was more of them. I wish there was more people doing this. And I think there, I think there are more and more people trying, but 
people kind of like dip their foot in, like he's kind of gone all in. And I think that's amazing. Um, uh, another person I throw out there is uh, Will Harlan, like in terms of, um, you know, he's basically defining cult wines in California. The other thing I think is super awesome as a benchmark for the U.S. is I think generational ownership of land and, and, and wineries is going to be really important for a new world locations in order to you know, like figure out where, where are our best locations? Where is our best terroir? Where is our, where can we make the best wine? And he's really taken that approach. You know, he's got this 200 year plan. And I just think that having someone like that, that's kind of like the guiding light of what it could be because, you know, Europe has 500 years, 600, 700 years of history on us in terms of knowing what, what works where. Um, and so I think having someone like that at the, you know, in California, um, at, and doing, you know, making really high end wines that, you know, that are obviously really expensive, but also really rare and scarce. And he knows and this marketing is also super dialed in. And also now with prominentory, um, tasting room being open, um, you know, he's, you've translated that into hospitality and it's just like this kind of beautiful, like super high end, luxury thing and what you kind of think of in your dreams of like when, when people go to Napa, like what it could be like. And I just hope that more people, you know, it doesn't everything has to be that expensive, but I hope more people kind of embody like, Hey, I'm going to set up a brand as my family's going to do this for a couple hundred years. And we're going to figure this out. So that's kind of interesting because it was, uh, was it Forbes or somewhere like that? That's the only 5% of businesses make it past the third generation or something like that. I can't remember, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but like, but you reckon that, for, that families are going to be a good idea for the, the new world? I think it has to be. I think. I think it's. I think. I think we're going to see. We're already starting to see some wineries that don't have heirs or don't have people who want to take it over and keep the business. That it just gets bought up by some big conglomerate. I mean, these conglomerates are going to be like, great. You just made a brand for the last thirty years, and I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to use the name, and I'm going to, you know, turn up the volume potentially. I mean, I'm, I'm being maybe a bit <laughs> doomsday here, but uh, I just, you know, I think that keeping if you want to keep it in the right hands and keep that quality and keep that legacy. I think you have to, you know, transition it from one owner to the next. And whether that's the same family member, I think that's ideal, but you have to instill that in your family from a young age. I just don't think that's just not something in the American psyche. When you're assuming that those are the small guys where you have family businesses like Silver Oak, like Jackson Family, Gallo, Gina Gallo, right? These are the biggest wine companies, some of the biggest wine companies in the world. And they're family owned and passing it down, but in a more corporate structure. But if you look at like a Torres or, or Antonori or others, I mean, I don't know how that's that different. Yeah. I mean, some of them have, some of the big ones have sold as well, right? Like it's, it's, I mean, some of the family, the big iconic family ones have sold. Yeah. Like Mondavi to Constellation. Yeah. And on that big conglomerate side, I think treasury wine estates, even though they've done a God awful job in so many things, uh, have really pushed the boundaries on a couple big things that have really been pioneering in the wine space. So leveraging augmented reality for their 19 crimes brand, which has really blown up and partnering with like soup dog and other things. But even just having that integration of that new technology into their brand and showcasing that to consumers is, it has been amazing and showing what the potential is. Now we talked about penfolds before around how they constantly have these new things that get collectors excited. So they had that like fancy ampule thing, or they've come out with a blend of three different wines. I think of three different granges, the G3. Um, and then now I think last year or this year, maybe even they released these wines that were blends of Australian wines and American wines and Californian wines. So they're definitely pushing the boundary and trying to be 
pioneers in a lot of ways. Um, I think Laura Katana and Katana Zapata, who we interviewed in episode 54 of Beck Chateau, does an amazing job of promoting Argentina and Malbec and even like the concept of terroir through scientific research. And she does it so, in so many ways with events, with books, with, I, I don't know how she has the energy She's as, Oprah well of wine. As, being a, as well as being a doctor. <laughs> what did you say, Robert? She's the Oprah of wine. <laughs> <laughs> She's like <Maybe>. omni-channel. <laughs> yeah. She's like books and research institutes and... As Robert said, the champagne industry has always been a pioneer on the marketing side, largely because they generally have more volume and more money. So they act a little bit more like a spirits company than a wine company that tends to be smaller. When you're talking about the big houses, not necessarily the, the smaller guys, but they do all these collaborations that are so popular in so many other industries like Rotor with uh, Stark and Lenny Kravitz and Don Perignon and... And even their events push the edge to like there's the Krug encounters. Um, but this, so they have the scale, they have the budget to be able to really, I think, be pioneers in the marketing of wine and, and the whole region itself. Well, we were just talking about Louis Roder uh, transitioning to the collection 242, uh, which is, you know, kind of an ode to what Krug is doing with their Grand Cuvée. I mean, slightly different. Um, but it's interesting that you like when you have legacy and you're taking something that's been around for 30 years or 40, actually 40 years uh, with Brew Premier, and you're basically like, I'm going to get rid of this thing that people love and consider like a really high value, high quality champagne that it's like I can go to and I know it's going to be good. And you're going to make it different every year. Uh, like that's a bold move uh, that, I, that, you know, let's see how it pans out. But like it's a, it's a super bold move that I think is super interesting. And it takes a lot of courage to do that in the face of that legacy. But it's also smart because then they could increase the price right, of coming out with the new product versus having the legacy of the price price points of Premier. So are you seeing anything out of, like, I know you, you, Silicon Valley is kind of your, your background, are you seeing any cool techie stuff? Is it like the, the treasury wine labels are awesome, but you do have to download the app and it does take a while and I do keep deleting the app because it takes up loads of space on my phone and I don't really need it, right? Um, but it's kind of cool to show off to people. But there's, like, there's obviously loads of potential in that. Are you seeing, are you, what do you think the, the, the future for kind of labeling and AR and sort of techie stuff's going to go with it? Are you seeing anything, you know, or have you seen anything coming out? I think there's a lot of things coming up. They're not out yet, but there are things where people are going to... are. And I think Reese or someone does embed like an NFC chip in their in their label or in their bottle. And more people are doing that and, and being able to embed things like NFTs or AR or even, you know, have some VR components to it at some point. Um, in music, I think music, art, wine, all these things coming together. And I think tech being an enabler of all that is on the near horizon. It's not that far away, but I, I wouldn't say there's any great examples today. Yeah, I would say in terms of tech, the, 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 I mean, I think that the AR stuff is interesting in terms of, you know, I, I love back labels, like a, like a beautiful back label with all this information is like, uh, that, that's, you know, I, I actually often comments like, oh, this is a really good looking back label. It's got a lot of information. You know, it's not just marketing fluff. Um, but the fact that you could do that or have these, you know, have that marketing BAR or pop up to a video. And, and I think that those are where we're going. I think it'll take some time um, for those consumers to, to want to have all of that at their fingertips. And I think that as, as the millennial generation kind of uh, continues to age up and, and, um, uh, and the, 
the next generation comes up, that they're just technology first. I think that those things will become more and more common. I do think that technology is going to be powerful for provenance uh, and tracking and using giving wine big data. And I do think that uh, on the retail side, that de- the data and collection will enable personalization to a level um, that I just don't think you could get just by talking to the, you'd have to be, have to find them the best Psalm or best wine retailer uh, experience every time in order to get that big data can be able to help you get, figure out things that you really want and give you new things to op, um, to, to buy or explore based on the data that they, uh, a retailer could have about your purchasing decisions and, and leverage what's out there in the internet to kind of make new recommendations. So I think those are the three areas. I think that data, the tech could play a role in the wine industry in the near term. Now, I wanted to ask you something a little bit about luxury wine. Obviously, you've written a book on it, so uh, <laughs> hopefully if anyone can answer then. Um, do, do you think more wine should be luxury? And what are the sort of major lessons that normal or commercial wine can learn from the luxury market? Well, there's certainly a market for luxury wine. <laughs> I think the increasing price of Burgundy and luxury wine in general means that there's demand, right? Going back to the first question about supply, demand, and pricing. Supply has been relatively limited in terms of the brands that have established themselves because it takes years, decades, even to establish yourself as a luxury brand or as a luxury region. And so that supply is relatively fixed in the short term and can expand in the long term. Uh, But demand has been growing as more people around the world get into wine and then want to appreciate the fine wines and the best wines of the world. That demand has been increasing, but the supply takes a long time to come up. So Given that, I think there's there's the market opportunity for it, but it takes so long for the supply to get on that it, it'll be in big, big shifts. Um, I, so, but uh, and once you establish yourself as a brand, as true luxury, there's no substitutes, right? And so even though I think a new region or new producers can come on and take some of what I'll call maybe the bottom of the luxury tier, that the top that have really differentiated themselves as true brands like a DRC, for example, there's no substitutes and people are just going to want it, but pe- more people are going to want it. And that's going to send the price sky high because they're not producing any more wine. Although technically they are producing a little more <laughs> than that particular example is producing a little more wine. But you even have people like I read an article about Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors, an NBA team in, in our area that a basketball team about drinking DRC on the owner's dime, I think, to to celebrate. Uh, and for normal wines, what you called it, or I, I like to call commercial wines, although I've been yelled at from people, MWs, that that's not relevant because they're all commercial wines as long as they, <laughs> they make money. Um, right? So even luxury wines technically are commercial wines if you take that lens to it. But uh, I think learning for them, learning how to tell the story of a wine is um, could, it, they could learn from the luxury side because it, luxury is so embedded in the story that and it's a core part of the brand and it's it's generally smaller but it's usually easier to be authentic in that storytelling. If commercial wines can learn some of that aspect and tell their story better, they may be able to build their brand more effectively than just being you know as Robert mentioned like the thing that looks pretty that you pull off the shelf. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms and I the. I think in terms of uh, delineating the market, I think with Peter's book, it's really interesting because, you know, it was like anything over 
forty dollars is just like is just you know a, a premium you know luxury uh, wine. And so his book really went into defining like what are the characteristics and the and the 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 tenants of being a luxury wine. And there's, and there's a whole bunch of steps below that, that I think are also super important. And I think what, I, what is unique about luxury wine, you know, largely from reading Peter's book is that, you know, I think from some of the fine wine places below, you can actually work your way up like a value chain. You can, you know, the Behringer can start with, you can start with, you know, um, something low end and kind of groom them to private reserve, which still is a, is a private reserve cabinet from Behringer is still a, a pretty expensive wine, but it's not a luxury wine. Um, by by Peter's definition in his book, and so I think it's an interesting thing where people can learn how to tell that story. So what, when you see these like lower tier classifications, it's almost all related to price, and and his book talks about price is a component, but it's only one of like six components, and 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 those are the parts that the other brands can learn about in terms of like the, the marketing messaging how do you how do you explain, explain the backstory um you know how do you explain how much of this is made and like is it like why is it special like there's a lot of that stuff that is is super important i think that the other wine brands can learn from well yeah i think that that's a great point robert because as a producer you can price at anything or as a retailer you could price the wine whatever you want <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's luxury just because you decide to price it at $500 a bottle. Uh, and I think what's different is when the brand really stands apart from the wine. When it's not just about what's inside the bottle, but the brand itself has value, that's when you, you transcend into a luxury tier. And in that regard, as we were talking about earlier, that's where it doesn't matter who owns it necessarily because it's already created something that has already stood away from it. So it can change, it can be purchased by a multinational insurance company and still hold its, you know, luxury status. So, uh, well, let's, let's talk about, uh, so there, you've, you've, you've got six pillars you identified as uh, that makes a wine luxury. Is that right? From, I don't know, it was like three months ago and I've forgotten everything immediately of what, of what I did for the exam. But yeah, there, there were about six pillars. So uh, do you want to take us through just a brief overview of, of each of those and how they kind of fit in? I'm going to have to bring up yeah, I'm gonna to have to bring out the book to remember uh, all six. Are you, exactly are you, are you right. getting the book out? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was like published two years ago. He's already writing the next book. It's, like <laughs> it's right. I'll edit this bit out. So that <laughs> let's see here: the six attributes of luxury wine. The highest level of quality, of course. You know, you got to start with what is in the bottle, and that's got to be really uh, high quality, or that's you know, it's a a must-have. Coming from a special place, so this is where like the region and the brand of the region reflects back on the individual brand of the wine. The sense of scarcity. So part of luxury goods in general is it reflects not just on you and what you buy, but also what other people perceive of you. And part of that is through scarcity, right? Like, I have it, you don't kind of thing. Uh, but that's it's, it's how humans over time anthropologically have differentiated themselves from each other. Uh, elevated price point. So price is important. It's got to be expensive. Part of the elevated price point too is like what happens on the secondary market. So is it something that there is even more demand for than their supply and the price keeps rising even um, afterwards and over time? And it provides a sense of privilege. Again, this is like you both you feel really good and there's different types of luxury consumers. So some it's about how it makes them feel and they feel really special to have that luxury product or that wine and to do it. Or it 
you know, is a sense of privilege to be like, oh, I have this and to show it off to other people kind of thing, like your Birkin bag kind of thing. And provokes pleasure is the last one. And so, yeah, I mean, it, this is a luxury good. It needs to have uh, a pleasure and that pleasure can take multiple forms. It could take the form of just consuming the product itself or even of owning it. And so having pleasure and owning it for people who like to collect or things of that nature uh, are also all part of it. And so bringing all those factors together, you have to meet all those factors to really be a luxury brand for wine. Are there any that have, are there any brands that have uh, kind of fallen, used to be luxury and have kind of fallen out because they no longer do one of those very well? They oh. want to name and shame on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, the, uh, that's the big no-no in the wine world, right? <laughs> to talk about, about things. But um, gosh, I would say probably um, Mondavi was historically like one of the huge leaders of the space. And as they expanded their brand out to Woodbridge and Coastal Mondavi and all this, that diluted itself. And that diluted to the point where even though the reserve cab reserve is still, I think an iconic wine that is um, traded and they're trying to re rebrand a little bit to like Tokolon, right? Cause the Tokolon name has really taken off and they're, they have an amazing vineyard site and own most of the Tokolon vineyard. Um, I think has lost a lot of its luster over time and been surpassed by other Napa wines, including other Tokolon wines or wines made from the Tokelon Vineyard, like the Beckstoffer portion. Uh, but I, I do think they are trying to make the make the comeback, leveraging the Tokelon name. I mean, in the US, you could also say Inglenook was like, you know, 50s, 60s, kind of like considered one of the best, considered the best wine in, in Napa. Um, and, you know, through a you know changing of ownership, uh, it fell through. They tried to reboot several times um, and it's it just never succeeded. They've I think they've tried three or four times to reboot it. Uh, and have not been able to kind of give them the flame. But if you can still find those 50s or 60s, uh, they are fabulous. They, uh, you did mention sustainability is quite key for um, for luxury wines. And so, and, I, and, I, and there's a bit where you mentioned like sort of biodynamics and organics. And so without wanting to get into one of those, I mean, I'm not sure that they necessarily are more sustainable than conventional agriculture. But um, is, how, how authentic does that sustainability have to be? Or do they, people just have to be perceived to be? Well, I think it depends on how you're defining sustainability because I think there's a broader definition that's that includes economic and financial sustainability, right? So if it costs you so much to make that you you can't make any money on it, it's not an it's not a sustainable uh, and you can't sell the wine then it's for that price a much higher price, then it's not a sustainable business and then you can't do whatever it is you're doing to the land or the soil that is theoretically better. So that, has to play into it at some point. I think a lot, especially at the luxury end, it's uh, as when, uh, the farming part and the winemaking part. It's about improving quality, right? And when you're sustainable and you're treating the land well, then the the vines are healthy and in balance. Then that's supposed to improve quality. And like um, Anne Claude Laflave, I think is famous for having done tests side by side of like conventional, organic, biodynamic right next to each other, the same blocks and then testing the quality of the wine and showcasing that that's why she was a pioneer of biodynamics that that was increasing the quality of her product. And that's why, you know, she went that way, even though it's more expensive to farm. I do think consumers care about, uh, I, th I do think consumers care about 
this more and more and, and you see it, whether it's better or, or is it a marketing ploy or is it really mean something? Is there voodoo involved with, but you know, like that, that's all can be debated, but I, but I do think there is a general zeitgeist of people care about where their things that they're going to consume and go into their body come from and how it's made. And you see it, you, you know, you see cause you see organic cosmetics, you see, you know, organic shampoo like you, you, you it's all across every industry and so people do care about that form of sustainability obviously in peter's book he talks about it more broadly but i do think it's an important thing for people to to take a stance on and, and figure out if they want to tell their story does that mean everybody has to get certified no i you know, and i think uh, but i think they have to understand how they're participating in that or not helping that and you know, you know we you know we've talked a lot about you know kind of carbon footprint as well in our podcast um and just like pe- like wineries and especially the big ones need to really understand like what they're doing to the environment, whether it means they're organic or not. It's a whole, it's a, is, is that's just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what they're doing or, you know, they can be a, as an agricultural product, wine can be a, you know, a guiding light for how agriculture can work at such a premium product and help the rest of the ag industry kind of take this seriously. So following on from that, uh, what kind of wine Media. Uh, what kind of media do, does wine commentary work well on? Uh, obviously, podcasts. Uh, but they kind of you have to be fairly engaged, I think, for to be a podcast listener for wine, and then especially like for yours, and then arguably even worse for mine. Uh, but uh, so, what kind of media do you think so works well? Like, is print still kind of a thing? Um, and and how do people sh- shout about it? What what are you seeing on social media? Because I know you had a thing on. You did one on was it TikTok and Clubhouse? I mean, I've signed up to them, but I, I just I still don't quite get them because I'm probably the wrong age of wrong sort of 30 but um <laughs> what, what kind of a, what media do you see coming out and what do you think's um you know gonna be the future for wine kind of commentary yeah so i think i mean i think writing is still king at the moment and i think it will be because it's also i think the the demographic that's buying wine it's also what the what the industry is geared up to do um in terms of talk about i think that you are seeing what, what the thing that makes me happiest is you're starting to see uh, you know, it's not just the critics for, it's not just random person that's writing for wine advocate or random person that's writing for wine spectator. What I think social media and modern media is doing is enabling people to have personal brand. And you see, you know, William Kelly has his own social media following and he does great videos that then the wine advocate picks up, you know, he's in the vineyards with in Burgundy or in Champagne with people talking about things. And, and I think, you know, I'll get, I'll get to the, the actual answer to the question in terms of what type of media co- is there, but I think I do think that it's an, these these interactive media's social media's are enabling people to develop personal brands, so that when someone moves, like Jane Anson moves from decanter to her own personal brand, of uh, you know Jane Anson dot uh, <laughs> com, she can you know she can do that because she's basically has that cachet from the previous thing, but she's also stood out enough that she's a, a, a bespoke individual that has a has an opinion and has a has a unique viewpoint that can be talked about. And I think that's what's really powerful about a lot of the social media stuff out there that it's there can be a synergy. Like so the fact that William Kelly and Lisa Prady Brown work there's they have their own personal channels that also then work well with the advocates what the advocates doing on social media and the internet stuff is great. And same thing with Antonio Galoni and then Vince and all of his people. Um, in terms of media that works, obviously I mentioned that, you know, I think print is the number one, I think video, um, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I think a video, you know, video is worth even more, uh, because, you know, video is just so much more interactive. Now, I don't think there needs to be a hour long expose on, on, on content. I think that's where people have gone. They've tried to like re, re, you know, take, I'm gonna take this 20 page paper and turn it into a video. And I don't think that's what the internet or the world wants. Um, but I think of it like 
can you get to the point where you can get these bite-sized two-minute, three-minute chunks that really engage people? Tell me what I really want to know. And so conciseness is super important. And there are people who are doing that very well. It's not at scale yet. Not everybody's doing it very well, but I do think that is the future of like multimedia. And then the other part in terms of fidelity of media, I think interactivity, the fact that I can go and comment on these people's things and they'll actually reply to me um, and, and actually get back to you and actually and build a relationship, I think is super important, not only for their own personal brand, but just for the, the actual community of wine and talking about it. Well, video clearly did really well. That was what built Gary Vaynerchuk's brand initially, right? And that blew up. Um, now he's even more famous doing other things, but and moving on to like text, right? But I think Robert hit a key point that that was static video. That's one way, and then the ability to comment and interact, and with technology now, even live, you know, you could do live Zoom like we're doing now, and have an interaction with video, which uh, I think takes it to even another level. And I don't know that the wine world has quite figured out the interactivity part yet and how to make that work without having a, a glass. And when we talked to um, Valentina Bona of Marchese di Barolo, she said, it's important to have wine in, in the glass, <laughs> right? Like wine in front of the people. So, and that, cause that closes the loop. So you can have that interactivity. You could have the video from far away, but as long as you're sharing that experience of wine, cause wine is such a multi-sensory experience. You have the vi the visual, the, you know, the, the smell, the taste, all, all those senses coming together. And you can kind of capture that in writing. You can kind of capture that in video, but then having the, we haven't solved that, that complete picture yet. Oh, well, maybe we have with the little sample bottles and stuff that people, you know, can send out these days. Um, but I think that like closes it completely. It was always like the Food Network always joked about having like the smell-o-vision. <laughs> if they could do that, then they would have got it. One last comment. I'll be quick. Uh, I actually think the, the commentary is expanded. There's more voices. And I think that's a good thing. So there are people that non-traditional like i'm just gonna say it, there's like non-white males that are that are that are been that have a platform and have a voice because of social media and honestly that's good for our industry and we need more of that and the fact that people can find their community build their community and have their voice and how they like to talk about wine there's not one way to talk about wine and and i i just want the industry to realize the more people are talking about it the it's only good for the it's only it's only better for the industry right it's like we we just need to get behind that, that like, I just, the more people are talking about wine, the better it is for everybody. And we're going to sell more wine and then people are going to drink more wine. You know, it's like, so encouraging more voices is super, super important. And I think that, um, you know, online and social media enables more commentary with more diverse voices. So in terms of the AI behind stuff like social media that gives you lots of suggested posts, and going by the suggested posts I get on Facebook, it's got a long way to go still, but um, do you think that's going to be a good thing for, um, for, for wine consumers or not? Or is there a danger that they'll just get pumped the same stuff and promoted the same stuff again right, and get in kind of a echo chamber of like wine news? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if the tech behind it would, would let that happen. I, I, where do you think that's going to go in terms of marketing? So two lenses there. First one is like the organic reach. So if you take, if you think about what, you know, I, you know, I follow like a thousand people on my Instagram account. I don't see everybody's posts in, in sequential order. Um, they curate based on, 
you know, what they think I will like of those posts and sometimes put it in stuff, put it in posts that I don't follow. And that, and that's, that's their algorithm that, you know, people talk about. So you have to, you have to engage and have to work at it in order to, to make that valuable. So if it's just something you go on to every, you know, once a week, you know, it's probably not going to be super accurate because they're not going to have a lot of data on how you, what you actually like. The, the whole goal of those agri- algorithms are to keep you engaged. So they're not just trying to make money. They're trying to keep their, your, it's like the matrix. They're, you're, you're, you're the, you're the battery that drives the their engine, right? And so they're trying to they're trying to keep your eyeballs on their app. That's their only motivation. Once they have the eyeballs, they can figure out how to monetize after the fact. Now that, that's on the algorithm. So they're just trying to keep you engaged, and, that, and they're trying to smart make it as smart as possible. Um, I agree that Instagram is better than Facebook, but I think TikTok's probably one of the best because they're actually curating. 100% based on what you actually interact with, uh, as opposed to what you who you follow and, and using that as a baseline. Um, and then in terms of marketing, just to take it the next step, I actually don't think it's an issue that you're going to get bombarded with the same thing. I think if you do that, at some point, it'll just become an arms race and only certain, it's just going to dilute everything. What I think is important about social media marketing is that you can dial it in. You can really focus and I can target people in San Francisco who like natural wine, um, who make above this paycheck, who ha- of, are of this demographic go. And I target those people or I want to find someone who's research who has Googled health food stuff. Okay, now I want to market them clean wine. Um, you know that's a whole other topic, but uh, but it, but that but they've done a great job in marketing, and I'm and their marketing budgets are not big. They're just smart with their budgets and dialing them in. You don't need to market to the world like that whole concept that is ingrained in tech needs to make it into the marketer's minds of the wine industry because you can, with as a small brand that's only making 5,000 cases, you can use this technology to find your active D2C users and then just talk to them and get and keep them engaged and keep them buying every year. Yeah, I have clients who spend maybe a grand or two a month and that is with an outsourced like social media advertising firm to help them do the analytics and stuff on it. So it's it's not a lot of money relative to other forms of media. One one of the other things is just in terms of like what media would work well for wine. To my point earlier around the senses, I think the more senses you engage, the the better it is, right? So one of the most successful media examples is the Drops of God, the manga comic book out of Japan. I don't know if you've had a, a chance to read it, but it's it blows your mind with, with how well they describe and and create analogies for wine with a visual backdrop and a story coming into it. And so it's, it's engaging multiple senses and that's where video and the interactivity get you more and more engaged in the senses. And I think the more engaged the senses are, the more, uh, the, the better it works. So there's, uh, yeah, you've had a number of people on from different kind of sort of backgrounds in terms of, of business. This was a question from this year that wine is celebrated for its diversity of styles. Is this diversity under threat? Um, and my immediate reaction would be to say no. But um, I don't know. Are you seeing a homogeneity of, of of different styles? I mean, how how do you how would you see that from a from a US perspective? Uh, I I think the world is getting more diverse than ever. The world of wine. Uh, if you look at all the native and indigenous varietals that are coming back um, and even populating within the U.S., right? Not not native for the U.S., but uh, U.S. trying different things. I've, I know a small producer in Sonoma who planted a little bit of Shannon and Menthea, right? Like, oh, what do you want with Menthea in, in California? But, um, but if you look at 
Italy, Portugal, Greece, Georgia, even, right? Austria. There's all these native varieties that are really different. Like, uh, I have a friend at Zaha Winery in Vienna who makes orange trob, right? It's like, okay, <laughs> what is that? But it's, it's pretty good wine. I had, when I went to Piedmont, a Nechetta for the first time, right? Uh, which is a good sort of seafood white. Um, Editori Romano. And then we interviewed uh, from Sograp. Um, they have a winery in Alentejo that focuses on Alicante Boucher. I've never had a wine that, you know, was made just from Alicante Boucher before, but that's like totally new, totally different and giving, giving you different flavor profiles. I, I do think the expansion of communication and knowledge sharing across the world has made a lot of wines taste more similar because the quality of wine is is improving. And so do I confuse Bordeaux for Napa Cabernet for Barossa Shiraz or Margaret River Cab all the time? So definitely. <laughs> so, um, and theoretically, I taste better than the average person. So it's uh, definitely, uh, it, there's definitely a convergence in terms of like style and, and quality for many wines. Uh. Yeah, I mean, the wine world's, ever expanding right and and i and i i think that's great because with with that we have new indigenous varieties and i think about like you know georgia and stuff like that comes to mind and things that i wouldn't have had 10 years ago you know i i think that i think that sure there is some homogenization for the big seven varieties right and and people are you know you you can get california chardonnay that blind could or oregon chardonnay probably more likely that taste a little bit more like burgundy if you taste it blind. Now, does that matter? I mean, I think as long as they're, you know, I think as long as that person's telling that story. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, the number of varieties, the number of people who are doing just different things, whether it's natural wine or, or, or different, different kind of containers or vessels in terms of amphora, um, in terms of skin contact, I think all that stuff is super interesting and figuring out now, I think what happens is sometimes we jump on these trends and everybody does orange wine, but still nobody's, nobody's quite doing it like Radicon and Gravner, right? And so, um, and that, you know, and so I think that the, the those things will then backlash. So I think if, if as long as people aren't chasing trends, I think that will be helpful. But I think eventually this diversity will surface, and those those iconic styles, uh, for those new diverse styles, will stick around. Um, but yeah, at the, at the again at the grocery store level, I do think there is homogenization, and um, and you know uh, there's there's not much you can do about it. It's just like sometimes I feel like I'm buying the same wine with just two different labels. Well, there's, uh, I'm conscious we're coming up a, to a bit of time, uh, and there's one question I always like to ask people to finish on. Uh, it was an exam question from a few years ago, but it's always a nice note to, to end on. Uh, what are the major causes of optimism in the wine world today? What are the major causes of optimism? Well, I think reopening and hopefully the ending of the pandemic is a huge optimism with restaurants going again. Uh, I think the embedding of technology across the value chain Right, be it in vineyards to the winery to how we sell wine and deliver it, are are creating enormous strides and making the wine world as slow as it is being a long agricultural lead time product very um, very modern and more optimistic and and even things like sustainability. I I know someone who's trying to design a new bottle with much less glass uh, usage than than has, has ever been made before. And that would have a huge impact on sustainability and climate change. Um, and then I think, you know, quality has never been higher for 
for line and it keeps improving, including from leveraging this technology. So I think that's that's there's making great wines as we just talked about from around the world. So I think that's uh, the third thing that would uh, be I'm optimistic about for the wine industry. How about you? Ro? Are you an optimistic dude? I'm way more optimistic. Than you. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're like we're like yin and yang here. Um, I, you know, for me, in terms of optimism, you know, wine is a product that brings people together and it, it needs to be shared. Uh, whether that's the person going to the grocery store to, to open a bottle of wine for dinner with their family or someone having a party together or someone who's a collector who wants to share some old bottle with some other collector. Um, and, and I tell Peter this all the time, there are bottles of wine that I'd rather share with him than my wife uh, because I think he'll re- enjoy it and respect it more. Uh, well, and more about the enjoyment than the respect. Because um, he might just on my wine, but <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it brings people together and I think that's to be celebrated. I think uh, that is the, the, the guiding light I want more people to have exposure to that joy, and I think, uh, and I think that technology and things that are happening in the world are enabling that. I think you're getting these, you know, communities that are developing to to talk about wine in a different way. And so, you know, it's like it kind of go back to the thing of like the WCT, like gooseberry. It's like, well, well if you're not from the UK, what is a gooseberry, right? What's it taste like? And it's like, but why can't I, why can't someone say tamarind and, and, and you know, and t- talk about other flavors and a different thing. There's not a, there's not a, there's not a way to talk about wine. It's like, Hey, did you enjoy it? Why did you enjoy it? Like, let's, let's make it part of the dinner table. And I, and I hope that that starts to happen more and more. And I, you know, I think you, and carrying on to that, I think that, you know, so I also think that as we mentioned a little bit earlier in terms of sustainability, I don't think, Wine is a major contributor to to the woes of the of greenhouse gases in the world, but I do think it is an area that is a luxury product that has one of the most expensive is the most expensive agricultural product uh, out there, and because of that, it can actually set the set a standard that other places will think, and then people care about that. People want to know where this wine's from and when who made it and, and like how it was made. And, you know, now people are asking, did we did they pay the farmers who harvested the grapes enough money? Um, those are all really salient questions that hopefully translate into other parts of ag. And, and my other, and my last thing is I, and to, to Peter's point, I think for you, for 15, $20, if you know where to look, you can get an honest bottle of wine made by a real person farmed by a real farmer. And, and, and it, and it'd be interesting. Is it, is it a Cabernet or is it a Chardonnay? I, not necessarily, but it, it, it you can buy honest wine at a cheaper than you could ever would. You could ever ha- buy in the past and it's better than it's ever been in the past. Cool. Well, look, that was the that was optimistic as as they go. I think that was all right. Um, so yeah, listen, Peter and Robert, I can't thank you enough for your time. That was that was really interesting. I'll put a link into your podcast because if anyone subscribes to this one, they absolutely one hundred percent should definitely subscribe to yours because it's 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 excellent. It's one of the best out there. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, I appreciate it.